Well, let's pray as we uh, look in the scriptures. Lord, thanks. There's lots going on. Help us to plug into the things you mean to bless us with or use us through. And Lord, as we look at your word this morning, help us to gain a little clearer insight into who you are and what you want to be about in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We take lots of things for granted. I've thought about this at various times. My wife's cooking, for instance, or getting up and the sun rises. I don't have to worry about it. Lots of things we take for granted. We're going to do a little science lesson sort of this morning on something else we take for granted quite easily, and that is water. Water. <clears throat> this may sound boring to start, but I'm actually very fascinated. It's no small thing. And I've thought about your folks related to this too, which we'll talk about a little later. But water is, in fact, it's funny. The more you study this, it's one of those things, the more interesting and complicated this simple product is. And just starting kind of on a large scale, think worldwide, think uh, not necessarily cosmic, but earthwide. Water is one of the most abundant resources clearly on the earth. The, the earth, 70% of the globe we live on is covered by water, 70%. And it's said that if you took the earth's surface and you squeezed it flat so that the mountains were all flat and the low spots were all even, even so that it was a simply a round globe, that water would cover the entire face of the earth to 8,500 feet deep, mile and a half, almost two miles deep. So there's a whole bunch of it out there. It's all over. 97% of the earth's water is in the oceans, 97%. Now, if you're a whale or a dolphin or a sea tortoise or whatever, that's fine. That means you've got a big world to live in, no problems. For us, though, if you're a land dweller, that poses a, a little bit of an issue because that means that there's less than 3% of the water on the earth is available for land life, and that's you and I, and that's trees and plants. It's all the animal life on land. So really, the world we interact in has less than, far less actually, than 3% of the available water on earth is something that we can actually use or consume or benefit from. <clears throat> So if you think of this, here's the globe, 70% covered by salt water that we can't use. <clears throat> we need that 3%, and how are you going to get that 3% recycled? Uh, on this macro level, again, you've got this great circulation system, basically, that God's built in. Think about your air conditioner at home. We take this for granted now, but Carrier really just developed air conditioning, I think, within the last 50 or 60 years. This was a huge innovation. All it is is it's a recirculation of gas. You let a gas expand and it absorbs heat as it does so in the coils inside your house. And then it goes out through pipes to the coils outside the house and it shrunk again. And all you do is recirculate the same gas over and over and it cools your house. But it's a circulation process that does that. Well, here we are. We're these land creatures and we've got to have water. But it's a very limited resource as far as that 3%. But there's all the water in the world in those oceans, only we can't use it because it's got salt in it. And salt water will kill you or I, and it'll kill most plant life also. So what are we going to do? You know, fortunately, God's got his own circulation system already in place. So every day, the rays from the sun are warming the ocean waters. And what's taking place at the surface of the ocean? Science students, evaporation, isn't it? That surface water is heating to a point where it changes from a liquid to a gas state. 
And as a gas, it rises up above the level of the water into the air. And in the air, it attaches to dust particles in the air. And then this other circulation process, the prevailing winds, start moving these particles of dust and water that have evaporated out of the ocean over the land. And then as the circulation process continues, of course, these dust particles with water attached form clouds. And then as those clouds come across, hopefully on some kind of regular basis, they cool enough that we had evaporation from the oceans. Now we have condensation where that, those gas molecules attached to one another, they become a liquid again. And then they rain on the earth fresh water. The evaporation at the ocean level, it left the salts behind. We've got fresh water now. Comes across in the clouds and then rains on the earth. So this little 3% that we need is constantly being recirculated. If you remember, there's a Charlie Brown Christmas show where the little guy with the dust... Pig pen. You know, he tells the little red-headed girl that, you know, this dust could have come from ancient Solomon's days or from Babylon. You know, you used to have a little respect for me. Well, water... Water's like that. You know, the droplets that we get in rain two or three days ago, who knows where those drops were? What water? What part of the earth? I mean, it's always recirculated. But think of this, that rain, evaporation, clouds, condensation, it's replenishing that fresh water supply all land life depends on. So some of it is filling the lakes and reservoirs. Some is filling the stream. Some is simply saturating the earth where the plants can take it up. If you think of winter, and this is even cooler again, you not only now have dry water falling, but now you've also got a storage mechanism to water the earth for months to come as those snow-packed peaks in the Rockies slowly melt over the summer months. They continue to disperse that water for weeks and months to come. And there's a built-in storage system in this circulation process also. So here we are. We're totally dependent on water. Most of it's in a form we can't use, and yet God has built in this circulation system where we can get the water we need from a source we can't use through rain. It's recycled. Solomon talked about this when he says, the rivers flow into the seas, but the seas are never full because we've just continually got this recirculation process going on, taking water we can't use, putting it in a form we can, and bringing it back over the land. So on a macro level, this is really cool stuff. Water, in fact, you know, if you talk astronomy too, water is one of the key components of life. In fact, Jonathan's talking about creation and evolution, but I'll tell you, the more you study or the more you read, the fine-tuning that's absolutely necessary for life is, is beyond description. And whether you're talking macro as far as the universe, our solar system, distance of the earth from the sun, etc., 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 you've got to have, life can only take place within a very fine parameters, very fine set of parameters. And this water, this is one of the big deals for us. Earth's unique in some senses because of the kind of water system and supply system we have. Well, think about this. You go from the earth, and we've got recirculation built in, and that's good. We, we like that. But think a little smaller now, micro level, not microscopic, but level of where we eat and live and, and have our being. <clears throat> Life as we know it is not possible apart from water. Life as we know it on this earth cannot exist, cannot happen. You can't have it in any form without water. At one level, water is called a universal solvent. 
the universal solvent. Uh, that doesn't sound very glamorous, but think of it like this. If I want to bake a cake in my kitchen, I take flour and I take eggs and oil and some spices or whatever, and what do I mix them up with? I put water in them, and water is the component that allows all those various components to mix in this matrix and give me a cake or pancakes or any of the other things like that I like. Water is what makes that possible. Or if Sean or Jim or Eric, if they want to build their patio to park their cars on, they take sand and Portland and maybe some other aggregate and fill, and what do they mix it with? They mix it with water. And it's this property that water will mix with so many components on the earth, uh, that's what allows it to be this universal solvent, and that this fact allows life as we know it on the earth. If water wasn't this universal solvent, life as we know it could not exist. Here's another thing. You and I, if you took water out of your body, there'd be less than half of you left. That is, take all the water, substance, out of your body. It's over 60% is water. So there'd be less than half of you left. Or uh, think of this with water, too, at our level. Surface tension. Uh, this is another unique component of water, that is that the molecules of water, H2O, they want to stick to each other. So if you look at your car after rain, those beads of water, they do that because those water molecules want to bind together and stick together. That's why it forms drops. That's why rain drops come down. It's because those molecules are adhering to one another. That, coupled with capillary action, this is a good science lesson, isn't it, Dan? Capillary action. Capillary action is physics, and capillary action means that a fluid contained within a tube, essentially, a fluid constrained by the narrow walls of a tube, tends to rise. Tends to rise. So we take surface tension, and we take capillary action, and it's those two components of water and physics that allow all plant life on Earth to exist. Did you know that? If you take away either of these components, plants cannot live. Think of a redwood on the California coast. It's, let's just say it's 300 feet tall. How is it going to get water from the ground to the needles and the limbs 300 feet up? Surface tension and capillary action. And it's said that one of these redwoods will lift, if you can think of it, through this pumping action of surface tension and capillary uh, principle. It'll lift a ton a day, a half a ton a day, 125 gallons of water, 300 feet in the air, just through surface tension of water and capillary action. So that's a big example, but the bushes, the grass, everything you've got at your house, anything that grows, it's all based on these two principles. Take either one of them away and you've got no plant life either. It all comes down to water. It's said that it takes, this sounds mind-blowing, but this is what they say, 200 gallons of water to produce one loaf of bread. That is, if you think of seed being produced, of uh, machinery, tilling ground, of fertilizer being put down, watering, uh, harvest, post-production, milling, etc., to get that to the store. Water involved in all those processes, 200 gallons to produce one loaf of bread, 2,500 gallons to produce one pound of beef. So if you think about it, at the level of life that you and I live in, it's not just the big scale, which is, which is part of it, but at the small scale where we live, water is this incredibly essential element, and its unique properties are what make life as we know it possible. Change any of these things, and we're in trouble.
if you look around Topeka and my neighborhood uh, included, certainly, you know who waters their lawn and who doesn't. It's been a dry summer, and my lawn shows it for other reasons also. We don't water, and our neighbors do. In our neighborhood, you can always guarantee a good conversation about the grass. Absolutely. That's the common denominator in our neighborhood. We spoke to a farmer from western Kansas probably three weeks ago, and he was talking about, as you probably know, central to western Kansas has just had terrible drought this year. Terrible. And he said that all the work he'd done early, planting, tilling, it's all for nothing because his crops are all burned up. He's, he's done for the year. There's no, no salvation for his crops this year. Too, too far gone and too little moisture. Western Kansas really is a, a desert to a semi-desert area, and so unless those guys get the rains at the right time, they are, they're out. And for this year, that water didn't fall in rain, and his crops, he's just gone. He's done. Another thing, if you look at athletes, and there's lots of commercials. They must sell a lot of this stuff, and the profit margin must be good. But sports drinks, you know, the, the Gatorade-type stuff, Athletes or construction workers, anyone who sweats a lot can tell you that if you don't stay hydrated, you won't last. In a game or at a work day or whatever, your body's you're going through a lot of water, you're sweating to stay cool, you're going through tons of fluid, and you've got to replenish that. And if you don't, you're going to feel it. And whether like we've had, it might be heat cramps or heat, in extreme cases, heat stroke. You have to be careful because you have to keep your body hydrated. So the bottom line is, at the big scale and at the little scale, water is this essential component we cannot live without. Life as we know it, absolutely dependent on water. Let me give you a couple biblical examples of the desirability of water out of Joshua. <clears throat> the first one, I don't think I'll do this with any of my daughters, but uh, Caleb, one of the 12 spies, said that whoever conquered this city, he'd give his daughter oxa to. So whoever took the city first, conquered the wall, got his daughter. Good deal, I think. She was shrewd, though. She was shrewd. Listen to what she said. When Caleb is being given his portion of land in Joshua 15, uh, this is what it says. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured the city, so he gave him Oxa, his daughter, as a wife. That was the deal. It came about that when she came to him, she persuaded him, her new husband, to ask her father for a field. This is good. I like her already. Go ask Dad for that field over there. Okay. So he does. He's given the field. She alighted from the donkey, went to Caleb, her father, and he says, What do you want? And she said, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the south, or the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Her husband asks for the land, and he gets it. But she's shrewd, and she knows the land's okay, but land without water in this part of the world isn't worth much. She asks her dad, and he gives her the upper and the lower springs. So she's got the land, but she's also got what she knows is absolutely essential to make that area productive. She's got the water. Or think of Genesis 13. You remember when Abraham and Lot, the shepherds, are getting bickering and quarreling because... They've both grown so large, they've got so many servants and so many animals that they're in competition with one another because they live together. They're competing with one another over food and water. So Abraham tells Lot, you look around, you choose one direction, I'll choose another. We'll separate so that the land can support each of us wherever we go. Totally aside from whatever else you think of Lot and his decision, listen to what Lot says. 
It says, Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw the valley of the Jordan down where the river runs, that it was well watered everywhere. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar, not the desert land of Egypt, the well watered area of Egypt around the Nile Basin. So when Lot's looking out, he's got a bunch of animals to take care of, and he knows he needs water. And he looks down in that river, flat river bottom, and he knows that's the place I want to go. Why? Because there's plenty of water. Got to have it. Got to have the water. If you think physically, we're physical creatures, and that's the the world in which we inhabit, water is absolutely essential. You've got to have it. Can't do without it. Physically, Water is essential. What about spiritually? We are more than the bodies we, we live in and experience life through. Your soul and your spirit. I wonder if there's a water component to the spiritual life. Listen to what David says in Psalm 42. He says, As the deer pants, pants, its tongue sticking out, it's dry and thirsty, it's panting like a guy who's just played a basketball game. As the deer pants for the water brooks, So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Remember that for David, God inhabited the temple. And he's away from the temple when he he writes this. And he says, my soul is like that deer that's probably been run hard through the dry waste places. And all it can think about is a drink of water a brook of water. It knows that's all I need. That's all I want. That's all I'm thinking about. Give me a drink. He says that's what it's like for him and his soul related to God. He's probably been away from the temple for a while. He hasn't been at the place where God reveals himself, where God dwells, the tabernacle in his day in Israel. And he says, all I want to do is get back there where God is. My soul wants to be refreshed and enlivened again in God's presence. Or listen to one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 1. David writes this again, and he's talking about the man that is blessed and the man or the woman that is blessed. He says, you know, the person that is blessed doesn't do certain kinds of things and and avoids certain kinds of people because they bring trouble, they bring death, not life. He says, verse 2 in Psalm 1, but his delights in the law of the Lord, in his law he meditates day and night. So he knows God, and he knows God through his word, and he's mulling that over. He's mulling over the truth about who God is and what he's like in his word. The law, that's the the, uh, scriptures that David had available in that day. And this is what it says that person is like. He avoids evil. He focuses his life on God, the source of all life, by meditating in his word, and he says this, that person will be like a tree that's firmly planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season, its leaf doesn't wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So this person who's eschewing evil, avoiding the wrong things, meditating on God and his word, the truth, that person gets the benefit just as if he were a tree planted by a river. Now, if you go, even in the hot summer we've had this year, If you go down, cross the bridges, go across and look at the river, you'll see the cottonwoods primarily that grow along the Kansas River. They're still green. They have a source of water that doesn't run dry. Even as as dry as our summer has been, they're still being fed water. The the Kansas River still fed water 
And it's down, certainly. But the trees along the banks of that river still have plenty of water. Their leaves are still healthy. And any of the fruit trees that would be along that area would still be bearing fruit. But it's because they've got a source of water that's constant. It's always there. It's always available. And that's where their roots go down. So that spiritually, the person who's focusing on God, meditating in his word, is like a tree by a stream of water that's always, always abundantly supplying everything they need. Contrast this with Jeremiah. Listen to what Jeremiah says to the Jews during his day. This is just before the southern kingdom, Judah, is taken captive. Jeremiah 2. God says to Jeremiah, he says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, containers, Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now just think about this for a second. If you're just sane or rational, just put this in the physical. You know that you need water, and here's a fountain that's always bubbling over with fresh, pure water. And there's the desert. Which place would you go? This is not hard. This is sane, and this is rational. This just says, here's a water supply that never runs dry. It's pure. It's healthy water. It's always, it's bubbling up. It's overflowing. And there's the dry desert. Well, God says spiritually, when Israel turned from him, it was no less insane or irrational than a person turning from water, full, abundant, clean water, and going out to look for it in the desert. So here's the water of life, it's free and it's available, and I turn from it and I walk outside and I go out into the dry desert waste places. I take my picks and my shovels and I dig a hole in the desert ground and I wait for it to fill up with water. This isn't hard. This is kind of a no-brainer. We'd say, what's wrong? But that's what God says they've done. When they turned from him, it, it was no different than an insane decision to leave Water, life-giving water that's full and abundant, and then looking for that same water out in the desert. And you know, even if that cistern, even if you get the rare desert storm that rains, the cistern is cracked. It won't even hold the water. You might get a little bit from time to time, but it's not meant to hold water, and you're still going to be out. In fact, listen to what he says later in Jeremiah 17. This is a great passage. It's a great, both a warning and an encouraging passage. Listen to what he says, Jeremiah 17, 5. Same thought. Thus says the Lord, cursed, and this doesn't mean God has to pronounce a curse for these things to be true. In Psalm 1, when it says, blessed is the man who does these things, that simply means that it's a natural progression, that the person who does these things will be blessed and prosperous because this is what they produce. Avoiding evil, focusing on God, produces life. It has to. Thus says the Lord, cursed. The person who turns from God cannot help but be cursed. They're going to they're suffer death. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. The key, the key phrase, whose heart turns away from the Lord. The person whose heart turns away from the Lord, they can't expect blessing or prosperity. They can't expect the water of life because they're turning from the source. Listen to what he says in verse 6. That person who's turning away from the Lord will be like a bush in the desert. 
They won't see when prosperity comes, but they'll live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Verse 13 in that same passage says, uh, Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because they've forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. So in chapter 2, you've got the person, here's the fountain, here's the desert. They turn from the fountain, they go dig a hole in the desert expecting water. In this passage, this person that turns from the Lord, they're not a tree. They don't rise to tree status. They're a bush. They're a scrawny little shrub in a dry desert waste place because there's not enough water to support a tree. And it says when prosperity comes, they won't see it. They won't know it. They won't be blessed by it. They're too short in stature to see prosperity over there. And they're in the wrong place. So on one hand, you've got this great picture that God says is the source of life. You can be a tree by a river that never runs dry, or you can be a bush in the desert. I'm wondering, which are we? Which am I? Which are you? Are you becoming a tree or a bush? Are you living at the fountain... That's the Lord himself. Or are you walking out in the desert? And the thing is, am I facing the Lord himself? Am I seeking my life from him? Or am I turning away from him, seeking it elsewhere? It really is insane and it's irrational. God, who is all life itself, says when you turn from him, he doesn't have to positively curse you. He doesn't have to reach down and spank you or you know, do something bad. Those things come because there's nothing left. He's life. He's the water of life. So if I take a plant and I go put it out in the sun with no, no water around it, it's going to die because it can't do anything else. It's missing the essential ingredient to life, water. And when you and I turn away from the Lord, we're turning away from the source of all life that our soul and our spirit needs. We can't thrive and we can't prosper. I ask myself, and you can ask yourself, are you becoming a tree or are you becoming a bush? Are you living at the fountain or are you digging holes in the desert? In contrast to the farmer that we spoke with from western Kansas, Tanya's folks live a little further west, I think, and they're blessed because of the location even in the semi-desert area they're in. And that's because, you probably know this, but through Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, there's a subterranean body of water quite large called the Ogallala Aquifer. And farmers from all over this area stick well pipes down into that aquifer and pump up water and irrigate their fields. In fact, I talked to the same farmer. He said he took a, a plane flight from perhaps it was Garden City and flew to Denver or Colorado Springs. He said the ground everywhere is brown except there's these green circles and those green circles are the irrigated areas where those folks have tapped into that aquifer. So the only reason Bill and Terry Lauer can grow those crops or the folks like them in western Kansas is because they're above a source of water that doesn't run dry. Eventually it's going to, unfortunately. Even something as abundant as that aquifer is being pumped out yearly. It'll never be replenished. And eventually, given enough time, and if the Lord doesn't return, Western Kansas will return to desert status. You won't be able to irrigate it anymore. But for now and for decades in the past, that aquifer has been a constant source of water so that even in areas that would otherwise be desert, they produce abundantly because the water of life 
is there. It's there and it's abundant. In Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel's given a vision of a temple that has not been built. If you read about temples and and Solomon's temple and the rebuilt temple after the Babylonian captivity, Herod's remodeled temple, also called the second temple, the temple in Ezekiel doesn't match any of these. It's not been built. Some think it's the temple that will be present for the thousand-year reign of King Jesus on earth. But in Ezekiel 47, he's looking at the temple and it says that there's a river of life that comes out of the temple and it flows down from the temple and it forms a river and the river gets deeper and deeper the further you go. Zechariah 14 says the same thing and that these waters from the temple in Jerusalem, these pure life-giving waters will flow down and out. They'll flow into the seas and they'll purify the sea. And that from the temple of God in Jerusalem, this water of life will go out and will mean life to the earth around it. It's a great picture. Great picture. In Revelation 22, looking past this temple, at the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem that John talks about in Revelation 22, same thing. There's no temple. It says you don't need a temple because God himself is there, but it says there's a throne. And that from the throne of God himself in heaven, there's a river a river of life that flows down from the throne, and it says it's at the banks of the river that the tree of life grows, and that the nations that come through the end of the millennial reign of Christ that start the new heaven and new earth, it says the leaves and the fruit are for the healing of the nations. There's a river of life coming from the throne of God in heaven. You don't have to wait for the millennium, for the temple, and you don't have to wait for the new Jerusalem to get this water of life. Let me close with this. In John 7, this is a great passage in the Gospel of John. John 7, Jesus goes down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. He'd pull the water up from the pool and he would go up and he would pour it out at the altar at the temple. And it was a reminder that during their years of wandering, when they, this feast commemorated that, the tabernacles were their tents to remind them where God had led them. You remember in the desert, God had struck a rock through Moses, and what happened? Water came out. In the desert waste places, Israel had water, which Scripture later says was Christ himself. So here's Jesus, knowing the passage from Ezekiel 47, and certainly knowing what his future home will look like, and he stands up, John 7, 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, and he stood and cried out, and he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures say, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, in these other passages, the water's out here, here's the stream, here's the fountain, here's the river, and here we are, a tree next to it, drawing our nourishment from it. This is better than that. Jesus says in this passage that those who believe in him, they won't have to draw water from the river. They'll have the fountain within themselves. In fact, the next verse says that he was talking about the Holy Spirit who would be given to those who believed in him. So that if you're a Christian today, you and I, our soul and our spirit, should have this constant ready supply of life-giving water through the Lord's presence within us. And 
it's true that for all of us, our experience always falls a little short. If you're like me, I'm always saying, Lord, where's the beef? I want more of this kind of stuff. But we should have, it should be a norm for us, it should be the normal Christian life, that we experience this life-giving presence of God himself just like a fountain, a river that comes up from within us. Not only is that good for us, you don't have to go to a river, you don't have to go draw water at a well, it's in you because God himself is in everyone who believes in him. Romans 8 makes clear. But beyond that, you then, you become a fountain of blessing to those around you. The fountain thing here, the theme is, if it flows up and out, it's flowing down and out from you. You know, Christians, we should not only experience God's life within ourselves, but this is supposed to be an overflowing effect in our life. This should be overflowing to those around us. We should be like the tree at the river, but we should be the fountain itself also. And the source is always the same. It's God himself. If you turn away from him, he says you're, you're just like the guy who's leaving the fountain, digging holes in the desert. You're not the tree by the river. You're the little scrawny scrub out in the desert. But when we turn to him, when we believe in him or trust him, he says you get the river, you get the fountain, and better than that, you get it all within yourself. God comes to dwell with us, the spirit of God himself, and we have that fountain of, of life, the water of life within us. So our souls or our spirits should always be refreshed. We should always be the tree that's got green leaves and ripe fruit. That's possible. We've talked about suffering in the past, but even in the midst of suffering, you remember the scripture admonishes us to count it joy because God will be at work. Even in dry drought times, you'll still have a resource within yourself that you can be encouraged from, God's life within you. And you can encourage others even in your tough times because you have a source of life-giving water in you again, the Lord himself. So this is cool stuff. I'm, I'm fascinated at the natural realm about how God's put all these components together. Water, you can't do without it, big scale or little. But then also, he uses this model to tell us he is the fountain of life. He's the place we should be getting our spiritual nourishment from. And that when we turn away from him, there's no life left. Because there's no water left, and we're like those plants. We've got to have it. Can't do without it. Let's pray. Lord, it is sane. It is the most rational thing in the world to trust you. You have more than adequately declared yourself creator, savior, sustainer of all life, Lord, of all creation, Lord, Paul said when those kings in Acts thought he was crazy, he said he spoke words of solemn truth or sober reality. Lord, I pray that for each of us, you would help us to simply do what is in the end in our best interest. Help us to be as dumb or as smart as the tree that puts its roots out to the water. Lord, help us face you, help us trust you, help us follow you, help us meditate on your word and the truth that it brings. Father, I pray for each of us that we would have this experience of your life within. You've promised it, your spirit's been given, and Lord, we want to experience it. 
Lord, for anyone here who does not yet know you, might they sense your knock at their door and your invitation to the water of life. In fact, you close the scripture with that invitation in Revelation 22. If you're thirsty, come and drink. And Father, give us the the same rationale to come and drink. Thanks that you're the water of life, Lord. Thanks that you're abundantly available. Thanks for all your promises to us. In Jesus' name, amen.